1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary.
0: And April Callahan. So Cass, uh, decades ago, the subject of our episode today remarked, quote, perhaps I do not belong in fashion because I am not fashionable. I love fabric, color, shapes, textures as a medium of expression. Fashion is now... Fashion is acceptance, fashion is popularity, and a large part of my work is anti-fashion. It is the future, it is conjecture, and has not yet been accepted.
1: However, her devoted legions of fans, then and now April, might beg to disagree, as also would more than a few legendary designers of the 20th century, including the one and only Christiane Dior, who was a fan, and Hubert de Givenchy, who once remarked, I think Miss Cashin is one of the greatest designers in the world.
0: It has only been three years now that we have been promising you this episode, dress listeners. You know, an episode on the iconoclast, the innovator, and the irrepressible Bonnie Cashin.
1: And today, we are joined by Dr. Stephanie Lake, author and curator of Bonnie Cashin's Personal Archive. Stephanie joins us to discuss her extensive work on Cashin, which culminated in her 2016 book, Bonnie Cashin, Chic is Where You Find It. Dr. Lake, thank you so much for joining us today to spread the cheer that is Bonnie Cashin.
0: Dr. Lake, welcome to Dress. And I'm so glad that we're finally getting to do this episode on Bonnie Cash. And you and I have had a few stops and starts and goes and restarts at this episode. So it's finally coming to fruition. And also, um, I just want to say that Bonnie is definitely pretty high up on my list of all-time favorite designers. And as you know, we do have a substantial collection of her materials at FIT. And anytime students come to do a class visit... Um, Before I open any of the boxes and show them things, I always ask them, I'm like, does anybody here know who Bonnie Cashin is? And maybe like one or two out of like 25 students might raise their hand. And I always tell them that actually you all already do know who Bonnie Cashin is. And as soon as I pull out... Anything with, you know, especially one of a sketch of one of her bags for coach with that toggle closure, all their faces light up. They're like, oh yeah, I know her. And everybody gets super happy. And and I think that speaks a lot to just how infectious her work actually is. Because once you know it, you, you can clock a cash and piece from miles away. It just it has that certain thing that only she had. So thank you for joining us and sharing your expertise about her work with us today.
2: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And you're absolutely right that there is this unmistakable Bonnie Cashen look. And she always felt that it was a little bit sad when you had to look at a label to know who designed it. Mm-hmm. You never have to do that with Bonnie. Every single bit of her work, no matter what date, is distinctively hers. And I love that your students are able to experience that and recognize that they do see Bonnie's work every single day of their lives.
0: Absolutely. And I was never actually fortunate enough to meet her. But of course, the two of you were exceptionally close. And your book that we're going to talk about today, Bonnie Cashin, Chic is Where You Find It. This is published following your doctoral dissertation on Cashin's life and work, and is also the result of this long-term friendship. And you actually inherited her personal design archive. So how did you first discover Bonnie's work? And how did you also come to meet her?
2: It was through just a series of magical events. There was nothing planned really, but it started with Vogue, Sotheby's, and a gift. And I was flying to New York to start my graduate work at the Bard Graduate Center and reading Vogue on the way. And there was an article about the new fashion department at Sotheby's. And so I ripped out the page, I scrawled on it, dream job. Uh (laughs) Six months later, I had that job. And one of the pieces that came in for our auction was a Bonnie Cashin coat. And for whatever reason, it never went into storage. It was always hanging in front of my desk. And it was also notable because I was doing research for all the auction catalogs. And I thought I would just go to the shelf in our little research library and pull out the Bonnie Cashin book and get all the information. And there wasn't a monograph. And I was just absolutely floored, even at that point, recognizing how significant her work was. And so the coat, it went off to auction and I was really sad, but it didn't sell. And so my boss, Tiffany Juven, gave it to me as a gift. And I thought, well, here is the sign. I had started my, my master's degree. And at the same time, my academic advisor, Pat Kirkham, had launched a major exhibition, Women Designers in America, 1900 to 2000. So I was in this environment passionately centered on stories of legendary, and too often overlooked designers. And I thought, I've just found the greatest untold story in fashion history. And I started to research everything that I could at FIT, for example, at, at the Met, at every library museum collection I could find. And then I was also working on 18th century courtly dress at the V&A. So I flew back into New York from London, and there, were, there was a meeting of the deans at my school. I was waved into the room, and they asked what I was interested in. I said, I'm really, really interested in Bon Cashin. And Dorothy uh, Globus, she said, we have a mutual friend. I'll see what I can do. So she called June Weir, who had been the one-time editor of W and, and also publisher and a woman's red daily. And through June, I was given Bonnie's phone number. And so I called Bonnie and immediately launched into my plan. I'm going to redress historical neglect of your career I'm going to put everything into fashion history as it should be. And she just chuckled. She just laughed at me and <laughs> said, well, you have years of work ahead of you. And why don't you come over for tea? So I went over to visit her at UN Plaza, where I will never forget walking into the lobby and just, it's all Barcelona chairs and chinoise mirrors and going to the attendant and then the elevator attendant up to her floor and walking into this just sunlit, modernist, cozy gallery. It was, it was floor-to-ceiling books and antiques from all over the world and this absolutely majestic view of the UN building from every room in her apartment. And I have no idea if we actually had tea, but <laughs> we, <laughs> we spent hours and hours talking. And at one point, I'd said, if we weren't alive at the same time, I would think I was your reincarnation, which is outrageous to say. And she could have shown me the door, but instead, it was, there were just these uncanny similarities with us. And as she would quickly define it, I'm just your big sister. And that was it. We just immediately kind of recognized and knew each other. And from that, she had her entire design archives. This is from the 20s through to the day that I met her, which was housed in a separate apartment in U.N. Plaza. And so throughout the week, every week until she died, I would go and just pour over everything, the photographs, the sketches, slides, films, garments, accessories, everything that was there. And she would kind of wander in and out and answer questions and tell me stories. And that's how we spent those years together. There was never an agenda. There was, of course, she was going to be the subject then of my master's. And then she became the subject of my dissertation as well. And she knew that she was handing her legacy to me. She would give me hints or she would give me books on writing biographies. She would hand me little directions in a way, but I redefined that last chapter of her life. There was no plan in place. There was no one else around. And she forever changed my life. And it is a fashion fairy tale. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So how did this fairy tale start? Can you tell us a little bit about Bonnie's childhood and her early years? And I I think she had an exceptionally close relationship with her mother, Eunice, for her entire life. Yes?
2: She absolutely did. And, And it was such an important thing to her that people knew that. There is no overstating the significance of their relationship. And they were side by side until Eunice's death. And actually, Bonnie died on the same day, decades later. And Eunice was, she was a dressmaker. She was extremely talented. Uh, Bonnie grew up with textiles as her first playthings, these beautiful fabrics from France, Bianchini, and Rodier, and all these gorgeous textiles. And Eunice encouraged every single creative dream that her little girl had. So Bonnie was designing her own clothes when she was just a small girl. She then started to design clothes for her friends. I have a little pink scalloped folder that says fashion by Cashin, both spelled with just an I-N, and (laughs) a photograph of three teenagers in in her garments around 1920. So she absolutely adored Vogue and the Ballet Russe and the Ballet and the Oz books and was just surrounded by this fairy tale childhood. But at the same time, her father, Carl, was really troubled um, had this unbridled creativity. He would just go from one industry to another, one career to another. It kept the family finances really unstable. Mm-hmm. And he, he was an inventor. He was a photographer. He owned a Nickelodeon. He owned a gas station. And uh, the last place of business, he was shot and killed when she was the young girl. Wow. And even before that, her mother had left with the kids. And they had moved through this series of California cities. They were first in old Armenian town in Fresno, and then Chinatown in San Francisco. And finally they ended up in West Hollywood. And Eunice, who was now a single mother, and at a time where divorce you had to a woman had to prove you were of sound mind. She was a single mother in the 20s, and she set up a dressmaking shop in Beverly Hills and named it after Bonnie. And Bonnie was very proud that she was a part of the family economy that there was stability and it was it was provided through fashion, through, through making fine dresses. And she was also a student at Hollywood High School. So by the time she was there, she was very aware of her talents. She was getting constant attention for them. And she illustrated her own fashion column in a local paper. She was the president of the school art club. She was in the drama club, probably with Faye Ray, who was a classmate of hers at Hollywood High School. But she, from a very, very early age, she knew that thrill of seeing her designs come to life and to be celebrated for it.
0: Yeah, and, and in your book, you have this amazing story from around this same time period that you were just speaking about, about how she auditioned to become a showgirl when she was 16. Would you share this story with our listeners? It's amazing.
2: If anyone knew Bonnie, you know, she was barely five feet tall. She was just the tiniest little thing and bird-like. Everyone always described her in terms of a little bird. And yes, when she was 16, the question is whether or not she really wanted to become a showgirl. She did love dance, but she showed up for an audition for Fanchon and Marco. And in this context of the 20th and Hollywood High School specifically, I don't think there was a student there that didn't think it was just a matter of time before they were discovered. Uh, The school had a publicity department and talent scouts came to productions. They would visit Hollywood sets for field trips. So she was very conversant with the entertainment world. Mm. So she shows up for this audition and she has her sketchbook with her, which she always had just in case that was her line, just in case. So there was always anticipation that something big was going to happen. She shows up for the audition and she's in her leotard and she's backstage. And she recalled watching all these long-legged beauties doing these high kicks And Fashion and Marco, they did live variety shows for films. Mm -hmm. There would be celebrity performances. There were vaudeville acts. But the highlight of the show were the sun-kissed beauties. That was the dancing troupe. So that's what she was auditioning for. And she sees all the dancers. She takes the stage. She presents her sketchbook and says, I can't do that. But I can draw. (laughs) And she hands the sketchbook over to everyone who's judging the audition. And they hire her on the spot. So she gets her first real job. She is hired as the designer for the dance troupe, and she immediately asks for a week off because she had plans with friends to go to Catalina Island. So just to show her youth and her naivete, that yes, she gets this job that I'm sure a lot of people in the 20s would have done anything, anything to earn, and it falls in her lap, and she immediately says she needs a week off. <laughs> And then she runs out to her mother and her mother asks, well, are you going to be paid? And she had no idea. She hadn't bothered to ask. It was kind of a a frequent theme in her life. The money was very secondary to just the thrill and the excitement over a design possibility. And when she did, yes, she was going to be paid. She spent her entire first check on a hat.
0: (laughs) Free spirit, free spirit. We love this on dress. (laughs) She knew what she wanted. She began working professionally as a teenager yes. and Variety magazine at the time even called her quote, the youngest designer to ever hit Broadway. But it seems even very early on in her career, she was fibbing just a little bit about her age. Is that true?
2: She was, um, it took her a very long time to decide when her birthday should be.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And, um, I, she wasn't fibbing, but she never corrected anyone. Along the way. And she looked, again, she was so small. She was just, she was beautiful. She had this useful appearance her entire life, really. And it was very easy to mistake her for a much younger woman. And it wasn't until the 40s and even into the 50s when she was traveling internationally. And you can see on every ship manifest that she ever registered herself on, she would change her date, birthday. And it was just this moving target. And then finally, she settled on 1915, which is still, if you look up Bonnie online, you'll see plenty of institutions that still have her birthday date. 1915. She was really successful in changing that date, which is by eight years, which is that's a lot to lop off of your age, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she got away with it. It didn't impact anything except for the 1920s right? because yeah. she really erased that entire part of her life. The rest of it became very well documented. Uh, as she went into fashion, went to Hollywood, all of those years. But the 1920s were were largely erased from the public record of her life. It was really, it's always been fascinating to put that back together and see how that did impact the trajectory of her entire career. And I would say on the age issue as well that it was such a common thing to do and because she was beautiful and, and useful and she could get away with it, it wasn't such an unusual thing. But I think that for Bonnie specifically, I know for her specifically that it was also, it highlighted this lifelong dilemma for her. She had so much creativity, so many ideas. There was never enough time. Mm -hmm. Time was merciless. Even when she was quite young, there was never enough time to do everything that she wanted to do. And when I met her, one of the first things she told me is that I need to live to be 125. There's no other way around it. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, and you were just saying that the 20s were kind of erased from her career. What was she up to during the 1920s? She was designing for stage productions, right? And into the 30s? Yes, she was Miss Roaring 20s. As she wrote of it, the world was my pearl button.
2: Even though she did she did manage to obscure that entire part of her life, but she was at the epicenter of one of the biggest talent factories in the country with Fenton and Marco. I mean, they were... There was even a slang expression for Fanchon and Marco that, oh, that was a real Fanchon and Marco production, meaning, oh, that was, like, you could say, oh, that dimmer was a real Fanchon and Marco production. (laughs) I mean, it was so opulent and so extravagant and so over the top. And that was her life, every single day, costuming these, just one idea after another, after another, and the dancers, and it was sets, music, costumes, every single performance was completely different. And these were daily shows as preludes for a movie. So she was working at this relentless pace and constantly figuring out how do I dress the dancers as burning candles? How are they going to be oranges? They're going to be trees this week. Okay, now they're bandits. Now they're temple maidens. She was just designing these fantastic, fantastic visions for these dancers. And then in the 30s, when Fenshin and Marker were asked to take over production for the Roxy Theater in New York, and the Roxyettes were the rivals to the Rockettes. Rockettes were the precision dancers. The Roxyettes were known for much more daring do and more kind of drama in their performances. And so she took over that. And at that point, the Roxy Theater was so, such a palace to the motion picture. There was a New Yorker cartoon where there's a little kid in the lobby and he looks up at his mama and says, mama, does God live here? (laughs) It was so unbelievably gorgeous and stunning and meant to dazzle every single viewer. So she was working then, overseeing a team of seamstresses, and her mother was there as well. And they were uh, creating, designing, creating about 80 costumes a week for those Roxyette dancers. And it was also an environment that so many other icons came out of. It's uh, Judy Garland and Bing Crosby and uh, Mae West, Joan Crawford. All of these other stars came out of Fanchon and Marco as well. But
0: Bonnie is completely removed from that story because of the change in her birth date. Oh, that's incredible. And, and you know, um, what I know of Bonnie's story and what I do, um, I teach American fashion history sometimes. Um, I usually pick up in the 1930s, like with her moving from California to New York. That's where we start the narrative. But there's this whole other backstory that people just don't know. Yeah. Yeah, Kate. yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So when and how did Bonnie leave the world of theater to wander into the realm of ready-to-wear design?
2: She she always had clothing design in the fashion industry on her mind, and not surprising given the environment that she grew up in and also the changes in ready-to-wear in the 30s. So she, I don't know how the meeting was set or what the connection was, but she met with Dorothy Shaver. Mm-hmm and had a lengthy meeting with her and outlined everything that she wanted to do in her career. And she wanted to design everything in the world that she herself wanted to wear. And this would be this would be her work. And Dorothy immediately told her it was impossible. You had to pick a specialization. And she specifically suggested for Bonnie, why don't you do dressy things or hats? And Bonnie left just devastated, thinking creatively there's no way that I could operate that way. I couldn't just do one type but as you know, of course, specialization ruled the industry at the time. And so she left that meeting and she shifted course and uh, figured out a way to attract a different fashion executive. And that was Carmel Snow, who was the editor at Harper's Bazaar.
0: And we should also just point out that Dorothy Shaver was, of course, at some point, vice president and then later president of the department store, Lord & Taylor. Yes.
2: Right. To, to have that meeting with Dorothy at that time was a very significant connection because she was fast becoming the most influential executive in the industry and such an incredible supporter of American fashion, really just unmatched in that regard. And it, it also speaks to kind of New York society at the time, that there was access, that you could distinguish yourself and be able to make these connections on a really personal basis. And that's what happened with Bonnie. Her next next tactic was staging this guerrilla fashion show. So she had all of the dancers at the Roxy dressed in her real fashion designs. And the stage was designed as a gigantic Harper's Bazaar. (laughs) And every single dancer walked off the pages of the magazine. And Carmel Snow attended and saw the work. And she immediately sent word to Louis Adler who owned Adler & Adler, a very prestigious ready-to-wear company at the time. He had also financed Fashion's Art Deco Skyscraper, 557th Avenue was also his project. And so with a snap of her fingers, Snow placed Bonnie as chief ready-to-wear designer for Adler & Adler. And she was following after Vero Maxwell. This was a significant business. Mm-hmm. And it goes to, to show really Snow's impact on the industry. Bonnie was one of these the first individuals who would be known by their last name only in fashion, in whose careers Snow really played this incredible role. And it was Vreeland and Pucci, Dior, Avidon, Cashin, all of these names that trace back trace their origins really back to Snow's encouragement. Mm-hmm. And so she started to design ready-to-wear. She was on the pages of Town and & Country and Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and sold at Neiman's and Saks and Bergdorf immediately. She never worked through the ranks. She just catapulted right into yeah, she, she just <laughs> the stratosphere. After another. And that's that's exactly how her career unfolded.
0: Yeah. also surrounded herself with all of these luminaries of art and architecture and design. And when I was rereading your book um, to prep for our conversation, I was reminded that Bonnie was married for a short time to Robert Sterner, who was a Disney illustrator. And he actually illustrated the 1940s versions of Pinocchio and Fantasia. And, And that just really drove this point home again to me as to who she was surrounding herself with. She never followed a traditional path for herself. So, and she also never necessarily worked, had working relationships that one could categorize as traditional. So what was her philosophy on this? And and what were her her early years of working in the garment district on 7th Avenue like? She had a very dim view (laughs)
2: of the way that the industry operated. And she later wrote, it was, an environment a squirrel would not tolerate. It was dominated by inbreeding. And she also wrote Dear Fashion Industry, I'm only saying these things because I'm family and I love you. I know you have problems. So she was very, very critical of something that she viewed as a creative industry, being so surrounded by just the dreariest of environments and approaches. She always wanted the care and feeding of the creative Mm -hmm. designer to be the most important thing in the industry. There was one story that illustrated her experience in 1930s, Ready to Wear, when her sketches blew out the window. And by the time they were retrieved, her bosses said, you have to start from scratch. Everything has been copied. You have to throw it all. And she was devastated by not only their paranoia, but also just the the chasing of profits really to the exclusion of any consideration for the creativity that went into an entire collection. Mm -hmm. She absolutely hated being treated like a machine that would just produce, produce, produce.
0: Yeah. And this is part of the reason why, and I think we'll get into this a little bit later on, that she never really considered herself wed to one particular company.
2: She refused. She was never employed by a company. She never sold her name. She never sold a single design. She never had an assistant designer. She worked privately from her own studios in her home and which she called her secret lab- secret laboratories. Mm-hmm. But she would never, never be in that position again.
0: Mm-hmm. She would
2: partner with manufacturers. She
0: never had never had a boss. Yeah, she was the consummate freelancer, I guess we could say.
2: She was, but she, she viewed it, she viewed herself as an industrial designer, Mm. that there were a set of problems and that she would solve and she would design and then they would be produced. She was working according to kind of a very specific template at mid-century when she re-entered ready to wear and that was putting her on par with industrial designers, which at the time was a very, very glamorous field itself.
0: Yeah. So her experiences working in the mainstream world of New York fashion, maybe not her favorite. After that, she switched stuff up a bit and took a job designing for Hollywood. And some of the films that she costumed are pretty impressive. And I'm sure many, many of our listeners are definitely going to know a few of these films. And, and in fact, um, I was talking to this friend babe um, of mine recently, and he remarked that he knew Bonnie's work as a costume designer and that he never realized that she was also a fashion designer. So can you tell us about her time in Hollywood and some of these films, these incredible films that she worked on?
2: She was a major costume designer. Um, She described her time there that she was like Alice in Wonderland. Sometimes (laughs) she was big and sometimes... She was little and always the story was the most important thing. And this was working a 20th Century Fox at the height of golden age, Hollywood, and 300 acres that were devoted to film production. She would describe how she was going from um, every every day at lunch, she would go from a different country to another, or from she would travel through time, going to all the different sets. And there also was this huge research department she had everything at her disposal to understand dress and to research real clothing and she also described it as this was the site of her formal education and it's important to think of what she left behind at that point point. and again it was another career that other people would have just done anything anything to have at that point with being the chief designer at a ready-to-wear firm. The Duchess of Windsor wore her clothes. Mm-hmm. Coca-Cola had her featured in the national advertisement. The New York Times First Fashion of the Times featured her. And then they purchased a pay- full-page ad in Women's Fair Daily with her garment alone as the future of New York fashion. She had Vogue gave her an award in their first Americana issue. Harper's Bazaar, the first issue outside of Paris fashion, started with her, her photo, her biography, Mary LaGuardia had enlisted her to design civilian defense uniforms for World (sighs) War II. But she had recently filed for divorce on the grounds of intolerable cruelty. And she was feeling boxed in creatively. So she left all of it to go to Hollywood, which was also home. She had family there. She understood the industry. And she is credited with about 35 films. She worked on far more. She even costumed Marilyn Monroe in her first screen appearance and as you are noting the number of cinematic classics that are defined by her costumes are it's it is a significant career those years alone her favorites were A Tree Grows in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. which she was so proud that the author Betty Smith told her the characters looked exactly the way she imagined them and the the clothes were meticulous in every detail threadbare and so familiar looking that the crew actually didn't understand that these were costumes at all. They were used to seeing, as Bonnie would say, a director would would say of a leading lady, give her anything she wants baby and put a secretary in a Hattie Carnegie student.
0: Which would take her several months to right. right. Which yes, it would take (laughs) probably years to to afford. Um, And Bonnie just, she couldn't, she couldn't stand it.
2: So she was so proud of Tree Grows in Brooklyn that her effort was recognized by the writer. And it really did um, make quite a point in, in Hollywood that it wasn't just about the beauty of the leading ladies. It was about storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and another favorite was the complete opposite, Anna and the King of Siam, which was one of the biggest budget characters of the time. Five acres were devoted to the sets alone. There were 70 exterior sets and a full replica of the palace. Bonnie, even when she was later in Thailand, she had said she she met someone who offered her a private tour of the palace, which she accepted. And she said, well, I do know my way around. (sighs) I worked on the Hollywood picture. (laughs) But she, it was a huge film. And the director, Cromwell, thought that she was too young to take the job. Of course, probably thinking she was, you know, 10 years younger than she actually was. But Saying that she was too young and Bonnie's counter-argument was there is no one old enough to have lived in 1860s Siam. And so she won the picture. It was casting hundreds between the leaves and the harem and everyone in the village. It was just a monumental project. And there again, she was using original 1860s notes. She was using Margaret Landon's notes, which were based on Anna Leanne Owen's own recollections. And so it was really promoted as this most authentic Film, which of course, it, as, as history always shows, it's not, but the effort was really there and it was taken and it was so sincere and serious mm-hmm. to try to capture that particular place and time. So, more accurate was a film like The Snake Pit, which Olivia de Havilland starred in, and it's the tale of a young woman's descent into mental illness. And for that, the cast, the crew, everyone involved went to mental institutions to do their research. And not only was it depicting authentically what was going on at the time in mental institutions, it also led to reform in psychiatric care around the country. Hmm. And of course, then there is Laura, which is arguably the film noir classic. And it was also a Bonnie Cash and fashion show. Mm -hmm. It was in Laura that Bonnie was able to design every single thing that she had outlined to Dorothy Shaver, everything she wanted to wear and own. And the clothes reflected her personal wardrobe. And even on the press tours afterwards, Bonnie would wear them. Jean and Bonnie would kind of, would trade certain outfits from the film. And of course, having Jean Tierney declare the clothes are to die for was a huge help. And so Bonnie's status at the time in Fox, it was was not just designing costumes and getting a screen credit. The fanzine culture at that time was so intense, and Bonnie, again, her beauty, her eloquence, her talent, it was a perfect storm where she was so frequently featured in these magazines, alongside the stars. People around the country got to know Bonnie Cashin for her on-screen fashions, almost all of which were copied for Ready to Wear at the time. But it also launched her as a voice in American fashion. There was a poll at the time that placed Bonnie as one of the six top designers influencing American fashion. Mm -hmm. And this is when she wasn't in the industry at all. So she had more publicity and more attention focused on her fashion when she was in Hollywood than she did when she was actually in ready to wear. There was a different publicity operation behind it. And it benefited her tremendously for years to
1: come. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today for part one of this two-part episode. Dress listeners, we have only, as I'm sure you can imagine, scratched the surface here covering up to the years Cashin spent working in Hollywood as a major costume designer. And you better believe Bonnie's career continued to unfold in surprising directions in the decades yet to come. Thursday, we will cover some of Cashin's signature innovations and reveal some surprising new information about her work with Hermes. And of course, her long standing relationship with Coach. So please be sure to tune in for that.
0: Until then, may you consider where you find the chic in your closet next time you get dressed. Check out our Instagram this week for some really luscious images of Cashin's designs um, and her work. And that is, of course, at dressed And also, please be sure to check out Dr. Lake's book, Bonnie Cashin. Sheik is where you find it, because this is also chock full of so, so many more wonderful images, quotes, stories, anecdotes. Um, so please look out for that at your bookseller of choice.
1: And we always love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com or slide on into our DMs on Instagram, as April said, at Dress underscore podcast. Thank you as always to our producers, K C. Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week.